0: Amen. Thank you, Tony. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. We are uh, in the middle of a series going through the Gospel of Matthew, and um, it is going to take us quite a while to get through it. And so, what we're doing is is we're going to um, be splitting the series up into a few little, maybe seven little mini series. And so, we're beginning a new series within a series, so to speak, this morning. Uh, called the Kingdom of Jesus as we take a few weeks and look at the Sermon on the Mount. a Very familiar, very famous passage in the scriptures. <clears throat> and so I would invite you to come to Matthew chapter 5 and we're going to read the first 12 verses there. Uh, if you have a Bible, you're welcome to pull, you know, pull that out. If not, it's printed for you in your worship folder. It'll also be on the screen behind me, and you can follow along in whatever way. This will be a very, like I said, a very familiar, probably the most familiar of the entire sermon, these few verses called the Beatitudes, uh, as we read them together this morning, beginning in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, that is Jesus. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. Now, we're going to take about ten weeks to go through this Sermon on the Mount taking us all the way up to Easter. And I just want to say it this way to you at the very beginning. This is Jesus' vision for the kingdom of heaven. You remember last week, Jesus came preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent. This is his vision for the kingdom of heaven. But we have to ask this one question. How do we approach the Sermon on the Mount? Okay, We've got to just, at the very beginning of the series, how do we approach this sermon? Because there are a number of different ways that we can get this wrong. One of those is, is we can, we can read these passages that we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks and we can see them as a legalistic system of attaining righteousness. And that's just not true. We believe in salvation by grace alone through faith alone. You, you do not earn your salvation through living up to the moral standard of the Bible. You, you can only be saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ through the work of Christ on your behalf alone. So, We can't approach these these passages seeing them as a legalistic system of attaining righteousness. But the other side of that is, though, we can't read them and think, "Wow, that's really great." But I mean, he doesn't really expect anybody to to do those things, does he? And so, on the other side, we can't. We also can't see obedience as being optional. I mean, Matthew five fourteen. Jesus is going to, right in the middle of the sermon, Jesus is going to make a statement. He's going to say, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's his expectation. So though it's not a legalistic system of attaining righteousness, obedience is not optional either. And so somehow we've got to figure out the middle ground between those two things and, and how we really begin to approach this sermon in a way that we, that we know we're still living by grace, but we know that the expectation is that we would be obedient followers of Jesus. Now, in the Old Testament, Moses goes up on a mountain to receive the law of God, the Ten Commandments. You might remember that story. That would define Israel as a people chosen by him to worship him and live to accomplish his mission in the earth. So here, if you look in verse 1, Matthew tells us in Matthew 5 that Jesus goes up on a mountain not to receive the law from God. He is God with flesh on who is bringing a new law. That would be on the hearts of his people who would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, worship him and live to accomplish his mission on the earth. Now, be careful. Jesus is not teaching us rules to live by. He is proclaiming the reality of the coming kingdom. And in doing so, he, what he's doing is, is he's providing an immigration process for us. That's, that's the, see, that's how I want to bridge the gap. That's the metaphor I want to use this metaphor of immigration. An immigrant is a person who of one nationality who goes through the process of becoming a permanent resident of a new foreign country. And that's what Jesus is trying to do for us. He's trying to, to immigrate us into the kingdom of God, that we have to learn how to live in this new reality called the kingdom. Now this morning we're looking at the eight Beatitudes that begin the Sermon on the Mount who describe the kind of person who, live, who lives in God's kingdom. I, uh, obviously, I'm very um, nervous about this. I had a nightmare last night. Uh, and the nightmare was that I got up here to teach and then I, I forget what happened, but things started falling over and microphones started not working. And I sat up here for 20 minutes and then right as I finally, they, everything was finally ready to go and I was ready to teach and then everybody just got up and left. And I think... I have very few of those, but they come every now and then. And I think, it, I think, if I could do a little Freudian psychoanalysis on myself or whatever that is, uh, there, there is a. I have a very real expectation that as we come to this passage, there is no way we can cover this in one week. I mean, there's no way we'll get to everything, but hopefully, it won't be that we get to nothing. Uh, so we got to look at all eight of these beatitudes in the in this passage this morning. And I want you to look and see something. At the very beginning. If you look in verse 3, you'll see that the Beatitudes begin with the description, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, and then you see the promise. The promise is, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then come down to verse 10, in the last Beatitude, the Beatitudes finish, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then look, there's a repetition of the promise, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, New Testament scholars, biblical scholars call that an inclusio. It's a way of beginning and ending, of bookending a, a particular passage of scripture by saying, "Blessed are the poor in spirit; theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Blessed are the persecuted; theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Everything in between, there, we're talking about the kingdom of heaven. I mean, this—we're talking about kingdom citizenship. This is a description of kingdom people. Now, hint—a hint for you. Jesus is not describing eight different kinds of people. These are eight different ways of describing one person. The person who finds himself in the kingdom. So a kingdom citizenship citizenship comes to those who are poor in spirit and meek and merciful, peacemakers, etc. Now, I need to let you know a little bit about the methodology because, again, I've got to try to figure out how to do all of this in one week. And so here's what I'm going to do this morning. We're going to take all eight of these beatitudes and we're going to whittle them down to three distinguishing marks of a kingdom person. Three distinguishing marks of a kingdom person. But here's what I have to, I have to help you see. What we're being confronted with here is a very important question, and the question is just this. As you sit in this room, as you think about your experience in church, or if you're new to Christianity, or if you're, you're not a Christian and you're coming and you're trying to evaluate and discover, we have to ask a question of, you know, all of us have to ask this, and that is, have, have I experienced a change in, change in citizenship? I mean, as you think about your life and your experience in church, have you been naturalized into the kingdom of God? Is your life informed and driven by the values and priorities of Jesus and his kingdom or by the American way of life? If you're poor in spirit, if you're meek, if you're merciful, if you're a peacemaker, then you're a kingdom citizen. But if you read this list, as we go through this, if you read this list and you start to think like I did at times this week, man, I'm none of these things then it might very well mean that you are a citizen of the world system and you've not yet become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And so you've got to ask yourself, do I really know him? And you're going to need to repent because that's how you come into the kingdom. And so as we think about that, as we come to this passage and look at these three distinguishing marks of a kingdom citizen. So we're going to look at three things. The qualification of kingdom citizenship, the affect of kingdom citizenship, the consequence of kingdom citizenship, and then at the very end we're just going to talk about how you become—how do you become the kind of person that Jesus describes. So the qualification, the affect, and the consequence of kingdom citizenship as we see it here, three distinguishing marks of a kingdom citizen, beginning just with this, the qualification of a kingdom person. And Jesus begins his list by describing those who belong in the kingdom, who find themselves in the kingdom, and he says they're poor in spirit. You see that in verse 3? The kingdom is populated, if you look there, with people who are poor in spirit, people who mourn, people who are meek. And so let me try to summarize those three qualifications and bring it down to just one idea. And I want to do that by saying this. This is a person, Jesus is describing here, a person who knows that their problem is beyond them. I mean, that's what he's describing is a person who realizes that their problem, whatever it may be, Their problem is beyond them. If you're poor in spirit, then you know you can't do life on your own. What does it mean to be poor? To be poor means that you don't have the ability to provide for yourself. You need help. So poverty of spirit then means that when it comes to your relationship with God, you cannot provide for yourself. You can't be good enough. You can't do enough. Your problem is beyond you. It's the exact opposite of Self-confidence and self-reliance. One translation even says says it this way: How blessed are those who know their need of God? Porn spirit. Now you can see the immediate concern that I have. And that is that if you possess wealth and talent and resources, and if you possess enough of them to arrange for your life, then what do you need God for? Why would the reality of God's reign in Jesus over the world be good news to you, you've got it covered. And that's why Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Does Jesus hate rich people? I hope not. Because that means he hates me and nearly every other person in this room who by getting in a car and driving here this morning are by definition in the world's richest 1%. I mean, no, Jesus is warning us that the more money... The more power, the more influence you have, the more problems will not be beyond you. You can just write a check. You can make a phone call. And when that's the case, you'll inevitably begin to rely on yourself and put your confidence in yourself and you'll miss the kingdom. It belongs to the poor in spirit. It belongs to the poor in spirit. Now, walk through this with me. Because see, here's how you gauge Here's how you gauge this this morning. How do you know if you're poor in spirit? I mean, how do you know... You know, if, if that description fits you. And if you keep going, there's really a journey that Jesus is taking on here. And Jesus says, here's how you know. You mourn. You mourn. You're a person who mourns. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, verse 4. And this is the movement. The more, the more you begin to feel that your problems are beyond you, that something is desperately wrong in the world, and that and really it has invaded your heart, it leads to brokenness and grief. You begin to mourn. When's the last time? When's the last time you had a hard day? You know, and you just closed your door and laid on your bed and you just cried. Because blessed are those who mourn. Those who stop trying to fix everything and just accept the fact that life is beyond our control and we can't fix what's wrong with the world or our kids or our city or even our own heart and we cry out for a savior. To the poor in spirit are those who mourn. And then I want you to see that this affects the way we relate to one another. He says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. You see that? Verse 5. So it begins to affect our relationships, this, this heart attitude or this life posture of poverty and spirit that leads to mourning that begins to produce in us meekness. And a meek person is a person who has a certain hidden retiring quality. Now listen to the description of this person. They don't exert their will in their, in relationships. They don't have to be in charge. They don't throw their weight around. There's a quietness to the, their life. They take the low place. They're teachable and quick to admit that they were wrong and patient and kind and gentle with others. I mean, the word is great. The word meek there literally refers to a tamed, wild animal. So it's not the description of a weak person or someone who is... Naturally nice or mousy, but someone who's been radically humbled and broken over sin so much that it has softened them. And if you want, I mean, to me, and I I don't want to toot anybody's horn, but to me, if you want to see a picture of this, follow Rick Lear around for a little while. This big, gigantic, hulking mass of a guy who can crush a softball 900 feet, who can't get through a prayer on the stage without just breaking down and crying. There's a meekness So, poverty in spirit leading to mourning, which produces meekness. It's this person that Jesus is describing that's the qualification of the kingdom citizenship. Now, so knowing my problem is beyond me, that the real problem is my sin, what Jesus is teaching is it will begin to break me and cause me more and more to mourn over my life, which will soften me in my relationships with other people. That's a kingdom person. That's a kingdom person. Now, immediately contrast that with the cultural value of self-reliance, right? Nike says, just do it. You know, or we read, we read to our kids, the little engine that could, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. I mean, this person doesn't believe their problems are beyond them. They can do it on their own. They've got enough money. They've got connections. They've, they're gifted enough. Just, they're just filled with their own self-importance. And instead of mourning over their sin, here's what happens. They start, they get angry at everybody else. They live just hacked off. Instead of being meek, they're willful. They push people around. You can begin to see the contrast. So applications to this point then, and I want to do this with every point. First, self-examination. Self-examination. Can you, do you have the courage to, to move into self-examination for just a minute and to see that our wealth and our influence and our affluence will push you more and more towards self-reliance and away from poverty of spirit? Do you know that? Do you know that? You need to know that. And to guard your heart against it, you need to find a good friend who will shoot it to you straight and you need to ask him, which kind of person am I more like? And I want to ask you, are you poor in spirit or are you self-reliant? Do you mourn or do you just live angry? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God belongs to the poor in spirit. And so where do you need to repent? But one more question before we move on to the second point, and that is why? Why does it work this way? Why is it that the kingdom of God belongs to the poor in spirit and not to the the wealthy and the beautiful and the talented and the strong? Why? And here's the reason. Because it's upside down. There's an upside down nature to the kingdom, but the kingdom itself is a gift. It cannot be earned or bought. It must be received. And that's why only the poor in spirit get it. The only thing you need, we've said often, the only thing you need is nothing, but it's the one thing nobody has, the only thing you need to find yourself in the kingdom is nothing. The only thing that disqualifies you from being a kingdom person is the feeling that you're somehow qualified. And so the first distinguishing mark of a kingdom person is that they're poor in spirit. But secondly, a second distinguishing mark of a kingdom person or a kingdom citizen, and I want to do it the same way I did by the first, by picking one of these and using them as a template for the rest. So let's look at what it means to be pure in heart. Because Jesus says not only are kingdom people poor in spirit, they're also pure in heart. Do you see that down there in the list? Blessed are the pure in heart, verse 8. And I, I want to I try to just work us through, again, the journey that we're being taken on, on here. And, and a, pure, a, a pure heart is a heart that has been cleansed of its idolatries. That's what the Bible means by this idea of a pure heart. That means that the work of God in saving us reaches into the deep inner places of our heart. And so being a Christian is not just a matter of, of moral reformation. It's not about New Year's resolutions or good intentions. It's about a new heart. And so you'll read in places like Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27, where God promises to his people, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Do you hear that language? And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's a powerful passage of scripture. Being a kingdom person means that God is remaking you from the inside out through the power of his spirit. In another place in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 11, God promises to give his people an undivided heart. That is a heart that is no longer divided in its loyalties, but has one single driving passion, and that is obedience to God's commands. Now most of us live, even in our Christianity, in a superficial externalism. You know, we'd rather not involve the heart at all. But this sermon doesn't let you get away with that. Later in the sermon, we're going to read things like this. We're going to read Jesus saying, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the tax collector. I mean, Does that freak anybody else out? I, mean, I don't know a single person in this room whose righteousness exceeds the, the righteousness of the tax collector and the Pharisees, except that he's talking about something that goes beyond ritual and externalism. It's something that goes to what's happening in the heart and how the heart is being changed in its motivations as you move out to be obedient to God's commands. Jesus will say, you've heard it said, don't murder. I'm telling you, when you hate somebody, you've murdered them. You know, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look on a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in her heart. What's Jesus doing? He's taking the law and he's saying it's not enough for you to look at the law and see it as this kind of outward moral conformity. You've got to see that what the law is trying to do is it's coming into your heart that what the Spirit is doing is the Spirit is trying to renovate you from the inside out. And that's why Jesus says, if you're going to see the kingdom, you must be born again. And to, to just make that declaration to you this morning, if you are a kingdom person, then Jesus is making you in something into something new. Hear me, he's not tinkering with you. He's remaking you. And that's what this sermon describes. You see, he says, you'll be a person who begins to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see that down there? Verse 6, your desires, in other words, will begin to change at a heart level. The agenda of the kingdom is just this. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Your whole life direction will be be changed because your motivations and your drives and your passions and your desires will begin to change at the heart level. God's righteousness will be the thing you long for more than anything else. And then you'll have your heart melted. You'll become merciful. Blessed are the merciful, he says in verse 7. You'll begin to be moved by the needs of others. You know, Mercy in the Bible is love that is prompted by the misery and the helplessness of other people. Mercy seeing the devastation in Haiti and being driven to do something about it. The merciful are people who can't stand the thought of another person suffering or being in need. I mean, your heart will begin to get melted. And you'll get fired up about meeting the needs of the people that are in your life and the people that you come in contact with. And then all of this continues to move eventually your relationships will radically begin to change. You'll become a peacemaker. Paul Miller, um, my friend, says it this way. He says, what, what, How you describe this person that Jesus says is as a peacemaker is, is he says, It means my ego is, has died and I am transformed into a lover of people. I mean, there's still conflict, but you deal with it in a loving way. I mean, your relationships are now characterized by love, by, there's peace. You can be for the other person. You're no longer driven by self-interest and and self-concern. You see, because, and what you have to see is, at the very core of what it means to be a part of the culture that we find ourselves, what what the culture is indoctrinating us into are the attitudes of self-absorption and narcissism. I mean, our culture is discipling our children in narcissism. And what we understand sin to be, sin is a besetting selfishness. Sin means that in everything I do, the person I am most concerned about is me. I, I am concerned about my needs being met. I am concerned about my wants being met. I am concerned about me. And because I'm so concerned about me, I can't possibly be concerned about you or anybody else. And that and what we understand the scripture to teach is that even in our best works the natural heart, the heart that has not been changed by the gospel, even in doing good works, those good works are selfishly motivated. I'm trying to build a spiritual resume. I'm trying to prove to God that I am worthy of his love, or I'm trying to I'm trying to coerce other people to love me by loving them. And so it's really, again, it's about me. It's not about them. It's not about love. And so, again, we need to make some application here, self-examination. I just need to ask you, has Jesus made you new? Has he given you a new heart? A kingdom person has a, has a pure heart. Are you pure in heart? Or is your life still just overrun and dominated by self-interest and self-absorption? As you think about that list of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, of those who are merciful peacemakers, where do you need to repent? Where is repentance? Where is repentance for you in that this morning? So third... Third distinguishing mark then. And this one is so important that um, we need to spend a lot more time than we have this morning on it. And so I'm going to just tell you you need to come back next week because because we're going to talk about it more in detail. But not only, Jesus says, is a kingdom citizen, a kingdom person, a peace, excuse me, poor in spirit and pure in heart, but he says, if you look down there in verse 10, that ultimately the consequence of kingdom citizenship is that all those who find themselves in the kingdom will be persecuted kingdom citizen is a person who has been persecuted. This is the third distinguishing characteristic of kingdom citizens. They are persecuted. Verse 11, blessed are those, blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. This is the consequence of kingdom citizenship. I wish I could say it was different, believe me. But this is the consistent teaching of Scripture. There's no getting around it. Just listen for about two minutes to some of these Scriptures John 15, and you can write them down and look them up later. John 15, 18 through 20, Jesus says to his disciples and to us, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. 2 Timothy 3 Verse twelve indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. First Peter two. But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. And again, from first Peter, which we read this week, and it's just this let this sit on your heart. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Why are we surprised at fiery trials? I mean, Peter says don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You see, kingdom people over and over again the scripture teaches kingdom people are people who face persecution. And here's why. Just here's why and then no, we're going to come back and we're going to pick this up next week again. But here's why. They're just too different. I mean, They're just, they're dangerous because they upset the status quo. Kingdom people are so, in their life, in the way they live, their character, their habits, their attitudes, their actions, they are so radically different from the prevailing norms of the culture that they are seen as a threat to the culture, and therefore the culture hates them. I mean, it's like, it's like, if you can get this metaphor, it's so simple and silly, but it is like gearing up in your Seminole stuff and walking into Ben Hill Griffin Stadium. Do you stand a chance? Now, of course, if you came to Dope Campbell, we would treat you kindly, with great generosity. Right? I mean, does a Seminole fan stand out in Gainesville? Yes. Just by, not only by their guard, but we're nice, and Gator fans are not nice, and so, you know, what are these people? (laughs) Right? You see that? And I've been there, listen, and I've been there, and I've treated people just, but I've been there, and I've been spit on, I've had Cokes thrown on me, I've been yelled at and cussed at as a little kid. I mean, why? Because I root for a different team. I mean, is that just the silliest thing? But, but, but there's a powerful reality in that, that, that if you belong to the kingdom, it, you walking, a kingdom person walking through the world will be like a Seminole fan decked out in garnet and gold from head to toe, walking through Ben Hill Griffin Stadium. I mean, that's the metaphor. And so persecution is going to come. Now, think about that. If, that is the, if that's the consequence of kingdom citizenship, then just think about how different that is from the normal experience of people in our culture. We are a culture that prizes, nobody prizes persecution and suffering. We are a culture above everything else that prizes personal security and comfort. And I remember John Piper saying the first time I met him at my seminary when he came to preach, he said, the movement of our culture, the movement of American culture is this. It's always, American culture always moves away from need towards comfort. He says, the problem is is that the the reality of the gospel is the movement of the gospel is the exact opposite. The movement of the gospel, God's movement in the gospel, the movement of people who understand the gospel will always be away from comfort and towards need. The two are incompatible with one another. I mean, the the way of the kingdom and the way of our culture are incompatible with one another. That is what Jesus is teaching us here. And so again, self-examination. Are you being persecuted? And if not, where do you need to repent? Because see a kingdom citizen, a kingdom person, is somebody who's poor in spirit, pure in heart, and ultimately... Persecuted, and here's why because in the kingdom of God, there is a clash of kingdoms that is occurring. Good is squaring off against evil, light is coming against darkness, and we're right in the middle of that. And so, we shouldn't expect anything different. So, a kingdom citizen is a person who is these things poor in spirit and pure in heart, and ultimately one who, like the prophets of old, is persecuted for righteousness' sake. And I don't know about you, but if you're anything like me, I read that and it's just so hard. And so I think we have to end our time together this morning by asking this question. If that is true, then where can you and I find the courage to willingly face persecution, to willingly go and to live Jesus' vision of the kingdom in the midst of a culture that is diametrically opposed to the values and the missions of, mission of that kingdom? Where do you find the courage To willingly live that way. And so look down with me in verse 12. And at the very end of this passage, Jesus says that when you're persecuted, it's possible to rejoice and be glad. Do you believe that? I mean, does anybody, can can you even conceive that it would be possible for you to rejoice and be glad in being persecuted? But how? And do you see the phrase, Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, that word therefore, that little for there, is a conjunction that means because or since. In other words, what what Jesus is saying is this is why. Why can you rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted? Because it is working for you a reward in heaven that is greater than anything you can possibly imagine. And so how do you do it? How do you stare at persecution and find joy to rejoice and be glad? Here's how you do it. You've got to stare at Jesus who was tortured and killed in your place, in order that through his work he could secure for you a reward in heaven that is greater than anything this world could ever offer you. And so I want to excuse me, end by doing just that for a couple of minutes together. So let's end right there. Let's end by first just staring at Jesus for just a minute. You see, Jesus is announcing the reality of the kingdom, which itself is an expression of the king. And his values. And so, what he means for us to see when we read this list of the characteristics of those who find themselves in the kingdom kingdom, is they're really just a description of him. I mean, he was poor in spirit. I mean, Jesus was God of very God, and yet Paul says in Philippians 2 that, that he made himself nothing and he became a servant, he became nothing. Jesus says in the Gospels, he says things like, I can do nothing on my own, but only what I see my Father doing. What? He became poor in spirit. Jesus mourned. He was eternally happy in the fellowship with his Father from all eternity. And yet Isaiah says that he became a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus, who was happy in fellowship with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity, became one who knew grief so that we... Mourned could be comforted. Jesus was hungry and thirsty. Upon a cross, he said, "I'm thirsty," as he was dying for the sins of the world, so that we could become the righteousness of God in Him. He was merciful. Our sin and suffering wrung His heart, and so an eternal covenant of love was was agreed upon between the Father and the Son from eternity past, that the Son would come into the world to relieve the suffering of those He loved. He came as one pure in heart, perfect in his love of the Father. He loved the Father with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength and perfect in his love for us as well. And ultimately he came as a peacemaker because on the cross, the wrath of God came against sin and came down upon Jesus and it crushed him. And he who was perfect in his obedience and yet was treated as an enemy was so so that we who live as God's enemies could be welcomed and treated as children. And so ultimately he was persecuted. The only time God put on flesh and blood, we killed him. And yet he came and did this because he loved us. You see, this is the gospel. I mean, this is the reality of the gospel. What we're seeing here is we're being introduced to how the gospel works. Jesus has won a heavenly reward for us. You can't earn the kingdom. You can't bargain for it. You can't earn heavenly reward. You have to receive it. You have to enter into it, and you only do that through faith and repentance. And so here's what we have to do. Here's what this is calling us to do as we come, you know, to the very end here. We've got to rethink the whole idea of what makes for a good life. I mean, that's what Jesus is helping us do here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed. He keeps using this word, blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. You know, what does that word, blessed, mean? The Greek word is makarios, and it means blessed or happy. I would translate it, the good life. This is the life we were made for. I mean, and you've got to get out of your mind this idea of the blessing of God. It's a different Greek word. Okay, different Greek word. That's not what we're talking about here. This word describes a state of being, not an emotional reality. It's not describing a person who feels happy. It's describing a person who finds themselves in a happy situation. One a situation which other people should want to share. So it's interesting, the word here is usually even used to convey envy. Fortunate might be a good word, except that it kind of carries a connotation of luck. So maybe the best way to translate this, and I, lo- I just love this, uh, the way you could probably best translate it is to say congratulations to. Congratulations to the poor in spirit. Congratulations to those who mourn. Congratulations to the persecuted. <laughs> What? The Welsh translate, translate this word, white is their world, as a way of describing a person for whom everything is right and good. It's the good life. That's the reward. I mean, that's the reward. Congratulations when you're Congratulations to you when you're persecuted. And all, you know, you think, you look at that and you scratch your head and you say, really? And so what we're up against is we're, 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 we're coming, we're being confronted with, we're having to deal with something. Completely contrary to normal experience here. This is completely opposed to every natural inclination and culture assumption we have, we're hardwired with. And that can be scary for us. And yet what we have to see is we have to see Jesus describing in all of the promises here the good life. He is describing for us the heavenly reward, the eternal life that can be ours if we believe in him. He says, believe in me and you'll be comforted. You see that? You'll be comforted. And let's just go through the promises. The word there is paraclete. It means that God will come alongside and will provide for you. He says, Those who believe in me, kingdom people, inherit the earth. He says they will be satisfied. The NIV says filled. It means all of your deep longings and needs will be finally met. It's a word that describes the fattening of an animal. So I would say it's steak for dinner every night. That's what, that's what heaven will be like. I mean, we'll finally be home. They'll receive mercy. They'll see God. The promise of eternal life is that we will gaze forever and ever on the beauty of God in Jesus. And we'll be called sons of God. We'll finally be, we'll be welcomed into the family and we'll finally know the love and the belonging we've searched for our whole lives. You see, these, these things describe the things our hearts truly long for. They are the ultimate desires and longings that are driving all of our efforts to succeed and achieve, we've been made for this. We've been made for eternal life, heavenly reward, to be loved, to be delighted in, to see God and to be satisfied. That's what we're looking for in everything we're doing and that's exactly what Jesus promises. Now here's the really great part. Here's the really great part. Jesus claims you don't have to wait. And here's what I mean by that now. What Jesus is claiming here is that this life that he's describing, this eternal life, is available to us now. And here's, here's how I know that. If you look in verse 3 and verse 11, you will see, well, before that, if you look at all these promises, they are in the future. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied and on and on and on except in verse 3 and in verse 10, when the promise is made to those to whom the kingdom comes, the verb tense is not future, it's present. So what what Jesus is doing is he's setting up a contrast between the future and the present. He's saying that this life, this eternal life, this heavenly reward that we've been promised is pushing itself into the here and now. We said this last week that ultimately what the Bible means when it talks about eternal life, eternal life is the life of the future that through the work of Jesus has been brought forward and begins now. It is the life of the age to come brought forward so that we can enter it and live in the present world out of the power of the age to come. And Jesus says, if you believe in me, the eternal reward, the eternal life, the life of heaven that you so long for, you you don't have to wait. You can have it now. But only as you believe, only as you stare at Jesus, and only as you're willing to repent. You see, to think that a bigger house or a nicer car or a different job or a different boyfriend or girlfriend is going to make the difference in your life. It's just silly. I mean, what we need is to see the face of God. What we need is to hear him call us sons and to find satisfaction in him. And that's exactly what Jesus promises to all who have the courage to be poor in spirit, to to surrender to the spirit's work in their lives and be willing even to face persecution for the sake of the gospel, eternal life. The life of heaven pushed forward into the here and now, available to all who would repent. And believe in Jesus Christ. And begin the immigration process into the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we are overwhelmed as we stare down this list. Because there is so much of it that is just not true of us. Even some of us who have lived long following after you. And been a part of church all of our lives. That there are so many places yet where where we realize our, our immigration status is still uh, undetermined, that, that there's so much about us that needs to be stripped away so that we can more and more become the kind of people who live as salt and light in the world in which you've placed us. Uh, and yet our hope, our hope is that as we continue to set our gaze upon you and as we continue to, to repent in the places where our lives are out of line with the priorities and the mission of your kingdom, that you will more and more grant us the Spirit to change us into the kind of people you long for us to be. And so I pray this morning for myself and my friends that you would grant to us the faith to believe in you, that you would grant to us the gift of repentance, and that through repentance and faith, we could stare down the reality of the future that we long for that has now been made present. So even as we sing, I'm bound for the promised land, we can sing it with the hope of knowing that the promised land is such that we can enter into even now. So help us to taste the joy and the bliss and the satisfaction of that. And may it radically reorient our lives to you. May we worship you. May we love one another well and may you get great glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. So Paul writes in Ephesians chapter one, in him we also have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory in him. You also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. If your faith belongs to Jesus, you can sing that song with confidence. And you can know that the the reality of eternal life is that all of the heavenly reward that is promised to you is pushing itself into the present and being made available to you. That you can live seeing the Father's face. You can live being called sons of God. You can live being shown mercy. You can live not hungry and thirsty, but satisfied. And all of that is, is contained in the promise that is yours in the benediction. So... Receive the benediction then, which is the the present proclamation of eternal life made available to all who believe in Jesus Christ. So, if your faith is in Jesus, then receive this great word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.